0: Security. Privacy. Okay, it's not that bad, honestly. On today's episode of The New Professor, we're looking at privacy, security, and how we deal with them in higher education. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, Assistant Professor of Educational Technology at the University of Arizona, and this is the new professor. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I changed my Gmail password. I don't use Internet Explorer. I use an ad blocker. Everything else is a hassle. And to an extent, you're right. Attempts at security and privacy can go overboard and be a hassle, but with good intent. Still, after all, there is an upper limit on the hassle security policies place on users before said users simply stop using the app. I mean, if you had to manually type in a 20-character password every time you wanted to open your email account on your phone, would you even do it? So let's look at some of the best practices in security and privacy in general, but also a couple considerations specific to those of us in higher education, like the need to jump on a campus VPN when working remotely. And I'd like to preface this by saying I'm not a security expert, and these are very general suggestions and observations that I've made. So much like starting a new workout routine or diet, consult with your IT staff for any peculiarities particular to your institution. There is much, much more you can do to protect yourself in a new digital landscape like this, like using a sandboxed virtual machine every time you go online, but we're going to start simple. So privacy first. There's a pretty heavy overlap between internet security and privacy best practices, because a breach of one can so often come from laxness in the other. So here's a good example. You know those security questions that you see on websites like <clears throat> banks? How about, name of your first pet, or mother's maiden name? Well, For folks with a fairly open digital lifestyle, these aren't really all that secure. One nostalgic blog post or Instagram photo could reveal all that info to anyone who's willing to just do a teensy bit of digging. But instead of locking down your freedom to share these aspects of your life online, just think about untrue but memorable answers to those questions. Basically, lie. Or, better yet, make them actual passwords using a password manager, but we'll talk about that in a minute. It's hard to be the new professor and still have high levels of privacy, especially online. Faculty are inherently semi-public figures, not in the legal sense, but in that we work with a large number of people, we publish or otherwise disseminate work that we're doing and strive for attribution. This podcast is proof of that concept, basically. We like getting our names out there. Some professors are even true public figures and household names. And the more public we are or want to be, the more we have to deal with, in some part, a loss of privacy. Now, I'm not saying this equates to a loss of security, and we'll get to that in a second. But first things first, let's talk about a virtual private network, or VPN. A VPN is used to obscure you and your data online, essentially. A good VPN will encrypt all the data going to and from your machine. It will hide your IP, the personally identifiable address that you receive when you go online. It will keep no logs of your activity. It will provide you with worldwide access at speed. A little side note here, it can also prevent you from using Netflix because of Netflix's own anti-proxy policies. So you'd need to turn it off to watch Orange is the New Black, and that's kind of that hassle I mentioned. Two of the most popular commercial VPNs are Private Internet Access, often abbreviated as PIA, and NordVPN, both good options you you need to pay for. But if you buy them annually, they're monthly the price of a cheap beer. Now granted, you can roll your own VPN for free, but it's far from plug-and-play. But I'll put directions on doing that in the show notes. For those of you who have to log in when off campus in order to access the student information system, for example, this can be a problem. A solution I've found is to use the VPN at the router level, so your entire network routes through that VPN. This way, on a device level, you can still log into the VPN at school and get your work done if need be. Of course, you might have to flash custom firmware on your router, and even then your mileage may vary on that, so check with your IT folks. If you do, here's something you might run into. You start using a VPN at home, and the fastest, closest exit node is, say, in a different state. Now where you were logging into your email from your actual home location, now all of a sudden you're in a different state, as far as your university is concerned ding-ding, red flag at IT and you find yourself locked out of your account, and of course this always happens right when you're about to submit grades, so I repeat, have a chat with your IT folks and see if you can get whitelisted for that particular flag if you're worried about it. Now, how about social media? Some people have argued for and against faculty using social media at all. It would be hard for someone in my field, educational technology, or the new professor Generally speaking, to be anti social media, and I certainly am not. But there are some basic steps you can take to protect yourself. If you're posting online, don't check in when you're out somewhere, at least not publicly, and especially don't check in at your own residence. And if you want to be totally skeeved out, take a look at pleaserobme.com, which has been turned off, as it were, and converted into a privacy checker, but, well, Just go look. Links in the show notes. You might even want to consider having separate personal and private accounts for services like Twitter and Instagram, if that's your thing. With Facebook, at least you can make a public page. And how about apps and services that help protect your privacy? For calls, and we're starting to get into that overlap with privacy and security here, maybe snag a Google Voice number if you want to put your phone number on documents like a syllabus. For messaging, make sure to pick something with end-to-end encryption. That means that only you and the person you're talking to can see what you're saying. Unless someone physically picks up your device and looks over your shoulder, but you're going to have to deal with that intrusion on your own. If you're serious about it, go with Signal from Open Whisper Systems. Even staffers at the Senate have been approved to use that now. Even better, combine that with a custom Google Voice number, and you've got double protection. If you're a bit more casual but still want to reap the benefits of that encryption, check out WhatsApp. And yes, Facebook bought it, but the encryption is still fine. So now let's say you want to step up your game a little bit and not just encrypt your text messages and calls. That brings us to PGP, a method for securely sending messages and files online. Stands for pretty good privacy. Problem is, and if you know about this already you're probably laughing to yourself, and you'd be right to, there is really no super-friendly way to use PGP that straddles that line between usability and security. The closest thing I know of is Keybase, which, according to their website, helps you perform cryptographically secure operations with people you know on the internet. And, again, link in the show notes. And this kind of reminds me of that little flow chart that you may have seen bouncing around the interwebs a while back. a very simple guide to determining, is my information private? It had one fork at the question, did you put it on the internet? If the answer is yes, then no, it isn't private. If the answer was no, then probably it's private, and that is not wrong. So, how about security? As I said, there's overlap between security and privacy. For example, the reason you concern yourself with security is to maintain your privacy and safety. So here I just want to focus on the security in and of itself, not necessarily what's being protected by that security. So, password managers. Like I mentioned a little bit ago, there's no shortage of password managers. Sites like 1Password and LastPass. The thing to remember about these, though, is they're a bit of a double-edged sword, because they are accessible online. And anything that's online isn't necessarily private, remember. Now, if you want to crank up that security level a bit beyond that, then you can use something like KeePass and sync your vault between computers, though you won't be able to access them on the web. Now, according to Pew Research, a measly 12... percent of users in 2016 use a password manager, and two-thirds of users rely on memorizing their passwords. And while some have argued that physically writing down a password and keeping it at your desk is more secure than having them online, I'd like to point out that it takes just one poorly aimed selfie to make that info public knowledge. Just saying. So how do you pick good passwords? Well, any fan of XKCD will know the correct-horse-battery-staple password. And that's... true. To an extent. That is a good password. See, we've kind of been trained to think that a good password, a hard-to-crack password, is one that replaces letters with symbols, or numbers, or underscores, and things that look complex, but... A computer doesn't have the same biases that we do when it comes to password construction. Shoot for something longer than 16 characters and make it something memorable. And no, there's really no way around this, so you're basically just gonna have to get used to it. Unless you use something like biometric data, for example, VCU's iris scanning, which is totally cool. Uh, Again, link in the show notes. So you've got your good passwords, you've got your password manager. Now on to your data. Please, I'm begging you, encrypt your hard drives. For Windows, you can use the built-in BitLocker encryption. This will do system disks that are in your computer itself, it'll do external hard drives, it can even do flash drives. And if you're looking to encrypt something other than a full disk, skip TrueCrypt, as it's no longer viable, and try VeraCrypt. Again, link in the show notes. If you're a Mac user, and Please correct me if there's a better alternative out there. Check out FileVault 2. It does basically the same thing. And, I'm told, easy peasy. And then pick a good antivirus package. Though, to be fair, these days you're more likely to get hit with malware like WannaCry than you are an old-fashioned virus, so investing in active protection like Malwarebytes is also beneficial. Now, your university probably has one with a campus license that will allow you to install it, on all of your machines, and if they do, great, go for it. If they don't, there are a number of free ones out there. Uh, Lifehacker typically does a frequent roundup of these, so I'll stick the link in the show notes for those. Spoiler alert, it's Avira and Sophos for PC and Mac, respectively. But please, whatever you do, especially if you're on a Windows machine, update your software and OS whenever it asks you to. A little bit of hassle now saves a lot of pain later, as anyone hit by the WannaCry ransomware will tell you. Oh, and if you're wondering about encryption privacy and cloud storage, that's another show. Also, if you're wondering why I haven't mentioned Linux, I figure if you're using Linux, you've probably heard all this before. So as I've said, university policies can throw a wrench in what would otherwise be a fairly normal security measure. Likewise, to some, the policies they do enforce might seem overly ambitious or even downright draconian. Many universities have begun requiring, not just allowing, but requiring, two-factor or two-step authentication. And note that there is a difference between these two. Two Two-step is what most people think of when they hear either of those terms. It's like the one-time code you use to log into Gmail after you enter your password. Two or multi-factor authentication requires two or more different types of authentication, like a password and a physical key, or biometric data, like a fingerprint. Either way, If it's an option, enable it. Likewise, the on-campus requirement for some systems can be a problem, as I mentioned before. It's worth noting that not all VPNs are created equal. However, the VPN you sign on to in order to access those systems, while still a VPN, is not made with the same intent as the commercial or personal VPN that you use at home for anonymity, encryption, and safety. And if it feels like your university is lagging behind in some of these areas, it might be worth asking why. And then fire up that VPN that you're paying for. After all, you're likely not just dealing with your own data, but that of your students and colleagues. So while all this might seem overwhelming, it really boils down to just a few changes in your digital muscle memory. Might hurt a little bit at first, but that's nothing compared to the trouble you could find yourself in otherwise. And for more information on security, privacy, digital civil liberties, and more, visit the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. Next time on The New Professor, squirrels. Uh, digital distractions. See you then.